0: Sunday to you. I'm Kyle, I am a pastor here, and frankly we have a lot to get after today, 23 verses in the gospel according to Mark chapter 7, and so we're gonna go ahead and just get right after that. But before we do, I want you to hear these words about Jesus that'll kind of frame up how we're entering into this passage today. The the words I want you to hear are this, If you're trying to tell your own world that it's going the wrong way, that its heroes fought for the wrong cause and its martyrs died in the wrong ditch, you'll be careful how you do it. See, these words, when I first read them, I thought they were the start to an op-ed piece, uh, maybe covering events in our nation right now. But these words are words about Jesus. And More specifically, these words uh, are about Jesus's words, the words that we will encounter here in a moment in Mark chapter 7. Words that if we're willing to hear them, I think have the power to both confront and to cleanse, or rather to lead us to the one who can cleanse. To confront the evils of our hearts and to cleanse us from that said evil. And if you're thinking, okay, Kyle, that's a bit strong, we are still in the introduction, we haven't even gotten to the passage yet, well, you'd be right, because it is strong. And in a moment like this, these words, tough though they may be, may be the very words that we individually and as a community need to hear. You see, Jesus, he didn't come to like police our morality or to make mean people nice or to help us help ourselves. He didn't do any of those things. No, Jesus came to revive our sin sick hearts, to get beneath the surface of our calloused conscience and then call forth the spiritually dead into the fullness of life in God's kingdom. That's why Jesus came. That's why these words are strong, and and we may be hesitant to say so, but that spiritually dead, those spiritually dead people, that's you and that's me. And so we are the ones who need to hear Jesus' call to the fullness of life. We need to hold these words up like the mirror they are and search and examine our hearts before God where confrontation doesn't yield condemnation, but it yields cleansing. There is safety in God's presence to do this. And so before we dive in, I just want to say a quick word of prayer, and then we're just going to turn to Mark 7 and work through it line by line. So pray with me, if you will. Jesus, you teach your disciples to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. But before that, you say, our Father. And so, Lord, I just appeal to you as a child who, with reckless abandon, pursues their parent, God, come meet us with grace and mercy. Help us to see ourselves clearly, to name our sin, to repent and turn of it, and by your grace, trust in you. Spirit, would you come? Would you anoint my lips? Would you give us ears to hear you? Through the power of your word, Jesus, we pray that our hearts would be stirred and that there would be a fresh resolve to follow you with our full allegiance. So come, Holy Spirit, we pray in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Well, on that, I invite you to turn with me to Mark chapter 7, starting in verse 1. And like I said, we're just going to work our way through line by line. And my request is simply this as we go through. Please do not look away if you feel indicted. As the, as the mirror of God's word comes and, and starts to like show us who we are, don't look away. Like Hold the gaze of God's word in the face of Jesus and let's lean into this together. So are you ready? All right, let's, let's get it. Mark chapter seven, verse one. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him, with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. And then this is a little parenthetical thought in verses three and four from Mark. He says, for the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. Pay attention to that line there. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups, pots, copper vessels, and drinking couches. Certainly don't want to neglect the couches. Verse 5, And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? There it is again. But eat with defiled hands. See, at first, we may not feel any which way about this passage that supposedly is supposed to like indict us, but in context, the, the tension is rising and soon we'll see that this is a rather serious visit from the scribes and the Pharisees. And just check this out. Back in verse 1, notice where Mark notes the scribes having come from. We see this, that they had come from Jerusalem. Now, later on in this passage in verse 17, we'll see that Jesus is back in his home, which is in Capernaum. It's in the northern parts of Israel, this region called the Galilee. And if the scribes are coming from Jerusalem, what scholars think is going to be about like a five days journey, uh, what are they coming for? Like what would drive them to make a journey and confront Jesus with a question? Hand-washing? Yeah, like it is, it's, it's hand-washing, but that's only the symptom. We, we see the underlying cause, like the really the reason that they're compelled to take the journey from Jerusalem to the Galilee, and we see it in verse 5, specifically in the language of the question they ask Jesus about his disciples. Listen to this again. Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? So even there, there's this contrast. And then listen listen to the contrasting element here. But eat with defiled hands. One scholar translates this question, uh, Why in the world are your disciples breaking the precious heritage of our ancestors? do you feel the tension? See, for the scribes and the Pharisees, hand washing was about way more than hand washing. You see, in the first century, it's common for devoted Jews and devoted Jewish people to practice ritual hand washing, especially before eating. Even in this passage, it seems like Jesus himself embraces this practice and that the Pharisees expect him to do so. I mean, He's, this is an argument from silence, of course, but he's not implicated, just his disciples are. In this practice, it had nothing to do with germophobia and everything to do with holiness. That is the tension. By not observing their way of life, then, the scribes and the Pharisees feel like the disciples are violating the way of life that honors God's call to holiness. And now I know that was a a pretty dense statement. And I hope that you can begin to feel the seriousness of this moment. But perhaps some context from the biblical authors will help us grasp the gravity of this tension. And this may feel a little like a bit of a nerdy digression, but stay with me because the juice, it's so worth the squeeze. So on, on page one of the Bible, we encounter a world that is declared good by God. And more so, it's just teeming, just dripping, oozing with potential for God's image-bearing creatures, humanity, that's you and me, to bring out all of its creative capacity. But quickly, what we see is that this world that God calls good is wrecked by rebellion. Human beings and spiritual beings alike, they reject the way and will of God and yield to sin. In other words, they call evil good and good evil, thereby disordering what God has rightly ordered. And sin, it's just one of the ways that the biblical authors talk about missing the mark of God's ideal. But the thing about sin this failure to reflect the the image of God and nature attitude and action is, it is utterly pervasive. It pervades our hearts, our familial relationships. It pervades our institutions. It pervades our cultures. It is utterly pervasive. And really, sin at its core, it breaks the heart of God and it fractures this relational trust between God and humanity. And God's response to sin is astounding. Now now just pause here with me for a moment. How do you respond to an offense? Take stock of that. Do you recoil and then return rebuke for rebuke? Do you fire up? Do you foam over with anger, but you don't really show whether it just kind of drips down and then eventually affects everything around you? How do you respond to an offense? The likelihood is that the way you respond, the way I respond to an offense is nothing like the way that God responds to an offense. You see, God's response to sin, which is this outstanding offense, is astounding. God's resolve is to combat sin by partnering with his enemy. Let me say that again. God resolves to combat sin by partnering with his enemy. That is, humanity. A a partnership that will bring about their and the world's ultimate good. And God starts this off by selecting for himself out of these enemies a people whose father is Abraham. A father who will be a father of many nations. <laughs> and then he tells these people, Israel, that God's cosmic restoration will flow through them. And get this as they embody his rule and reign in the world. And it's then in this context, this context of relational trust, the restoration of relational trust and the movement of renewal through a people that then Israel's priests, these people who represented God to Israel and Israel to God, it's that Israel's priests receive God's guidelines for flourishing and holiness. And they receive it in this weird book called Leviticus. (laughs) Stay with me. This This is where it gets really good. I know that holiness conjures up all sorts of images in our collective imaginations, ranging from like halos and cartoons to maybe the denomination you grew up in. But what I encounter most often as a minister around the word holiness is this vague understanding of morality. And while morality is an aspect of holiness, it is not the full or main thrust of holiness. Because cosmic restoration, it's not about morality. Rather, when the biblical authors describe God as holy, what they're honing in on is this idea of God's uniqueness, his set-apartness, if you will. In other words, to receive God's guidelines for holiness, that is the book of Leviticus, to receive God's guidelines for holiness was to receive a vision for participating in God's unique identity. So we may think the Leviticus is weird, and certainly some aspects are to our modern sensibilities, but it is a vision. It gives us a vision to partner with God, to be with Him, to love and live like Him. Leviticus, it's about living life in community with God. And so when we have that in mind, and we arrive back in Mark 7, this desire for holiness Man, it is burning white hot. It's burning white hot in Jesus and in the scribes and Pharisees, but whereas one refines, the other destroys. You see, the Pharisees, they, they believed that if every Israelite could live into the priestly standards articulated in Leviticus, then cosmic restoration would come. <laughs> Basically, if Joe Schmo Israelite can just follow the book of the law, follow the Levitical priesthood like to a T, then surely God's restoration would come. But there's economic barriers to doing that. There's capacity barriers. There's like gaps that prohibit that from happening. But the Pharisees don't live like that's actually true. And it's then from this place then of of zeal and eager intent and if we're honest, this this pure and holy impulse that this ritual of hand-washing emerges. And it's this impulse to be clean before God, to dedicate oneself to God in all places that informs this conflict. But as is often the case with religiosity, um, human effort becomes the means of grace. What starts off with good intentions quickly devolves into something that it never intended to be. But because hand washing can't renovate the human heart, this holy impulse, however pure the intention may have been, it devolved into this dehumanizing and even destructive practice. I mean, just notice that two times when the scribes and the Pharisees call out the disciples, notice how they designate them as defiled. They place this title over them that dehumanizes them as separate from God's presence, as separate from the community of God, Israel's people. They're defiled. This is what we do when we elevate ourselves in our efforts and our work before God. We look down our noses at people who we deem as less than significant. I mean, let me just ask, where are you holding your vision for life before God over and against others? Like, where are you casting dispersions and judgments? Because that's what's happening here. And I'll be honest, like, every time in this moment that we find ourselves in that I go into an enclosed public space and I see people without masks like I just feel this judgment rising up within my heart and then before I know it I mark them as defiled. See we need to see the mirror of this word holding up to us the evil of our hearts. Look how Jesus responds to the posture that that quickly rises up in our hearts there in, in verse six. Go there with me. And he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy about you hypocrites as it is written. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me in vain. Do they worship me teaching as doctrines, the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. See, Jesus, who avoided much of the conflict in Mark so far, he surprises us because right here, he leans in and he calls out the religious leaders with firm language. I mean, listen to this little mashup of this line here that Jesus just laid on us. In vain do you hypocrites worship me, Let me just ask, what do you think Jesus would say of our community if he showed up to interpersonal dialogue? Maybe the dialogue that's in the DMs or the conversation we had over text or even just the conversation in frustration. Like, what would he say of us? What would he say of our gatherings as we're gathering in groups and maybe even just little family units or with our roommates? Like, what would he say of us? kind of a probing question don't you think see that word hypocrite it can be translated phony these religious leaders they're acting like they're devoted to god and they're putting it all on public display but it's just an act that's all it is in fact it's not even genuine worship and if that's not enough pick up in verse nine jesus is just getting started (laughs) And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then You no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. See, if if we can remember, God's partnership with Israel was to bring about his rule and reign in the world, not human tradition. But what these religious leaders bring forward Nullifies God's word; it does away with it. And, and now the, these leaders—they're—they're they're taking their religious language and they're applying it to a social agenda that victimizes those who have needs. And, and this is this is what I mean. And this is how I got there. The law of Moses required the Hebrew people to honor their parents. And when I say honoring of parents. I'm not just talking about lip service. I'm talking about literal care of like uh, Eugene Peterson will translate outdoing one another and showing honor as playing the second fiddle, putting yourself in a position beneath. So the Hebrew Bible positions the people of God to love one another in such a way that when your parents grow old, you, who are coming into an age of prosperity and wellness and ability, you care for them. But the tradition of man created a loophole. A loophole that essentially said, um, all that stuff that my parents would have given me and that I would give back, I'm just going to dedicate that to God and be done with them. And if, if you were, gave that stuff over to God and that made you off the hook, Jesus then looks at you in this moment and is like, what oath of total dedication to God is any good at all if it victimizes those who are in need? This is not what the love of God looks like, especially from you religious folk. No oath at all would ever do that. That's the point. That's hypocrisy. And because Jesus is a master teacher, he doesn't want anyone to fall into this trap of hypocrisy. And so check out what he does in verse 14. Go there with me. And he, this is Jesus, called the people to him again and said to them, hear me, all of you, and understand. So let us hear Jesus' words, all of us, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. What's funny is all the commentators note that this isn't a parable, but it's such a bewildering statement that Jesus just made that his disciples are like, uh, surely that's one of those funny stories that you tell Jesus. Say more about that. Verse 18. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? I mean, Jesus just told the people to understand and his disciples are there. Okay, are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? And then Mark adds this on. Thus he declared all foods clean. Jesus announces in this moment that ultimately the hand washing tradition is a null and void tradition because true defilement originates elsewhere, not from the stuff on your hands. But just try to imagine yourself into this scene. Maybe you're a religious leader, that's how you see yourself, or you're a person in the crowd, maybe a disciple of Jesus. Either way, you are a good Jew. And the good Jew that you are, you know, you know that the thoroughly developed tradition of Israel handed down generation after generation taught strict dietary laws, what we call eating kosher. You know this. Here's just a sample of the language, just to jog your memory if you've forgotten. This is from uh, Leviticus 11. This This is what we read. You shall not make yourselves detestable with any swarming thing that swarms, and you shall not defile yourselves with them and become unclean through them. For I am Yahweh your God. Consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that swarms on the ground. Yet Jesus, right here, being well aware of Leviticus 11 as a rabbi himself says that there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. So what is Jesus doing? Like, Is he getting rid of the law? Is he disobeying the law? Well, certainly not. Because if you look at at another biography of Jesus, the gospel according to Matthew, and Jesus' manifesto statement in Matthew 5 to 7, he says he's not come to abolish or do away or get rid of the law, but to fulfill God's law, to bring it to its completion, and therefore to lead us back to the heart of God and God's heart for human flourishing. So what then is Jesus doing if he's not getting rid of the law if he's not disobeying the law? Well, first we need to see that the law of God may reveal our sin, but it doesn't restore our sinful hearts. That the law is a signpost pointing to our need for restoration. And this is what Jesus confronts is that the Pharisees have made the signpost the substance. They have made that the end, but Jesus is saying, no, 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 there is a better way, and he is here with you. The Pharisees believed that religiosity was the formula for restoration, but remember when Jesus calls the religious leaders phonies, that he also says this. He says that their hearts are far from God. Why would he say that? Well, this gets to what Jesus is doing here because this is the core of the matter. Jesus clarifies that what you do and what you say is more toxic than anything you could take into your body. And if you're not convinced, just look down in Mark chapter 7, verse 20. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within... Out of the heart of man comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, evil, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. If you're not uncomfortable yet, let me just read this one more time. See, maybe you can plot yourself here. For from within, out of the heart of any person, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. In other words, it's the refuse of the heart, not the refuse of the body that defiles. And Jesus is conjuring up the image of human excrement here. I'm sorry if that's a bit graphic for you, but one scholar, Sean O'Donnell, he says it this way, the filth of the toilet is not so great as that of a human heart not yet cleansed. Let's hear that again. The filth of a toilet is not so great as that of a human heart not yet cleansed. And maybe you're thinking, okay, that was a bit strong. (laughs) And when I, like, I'm not doing too bad, Kyle. But the point here, it's not like we're measuring ourselves on some scale of like, well, I did good things on Friday, and then I, I had that one moment, you know, the one moment I'm talking about? Yeah, that moment. So, but, but the good thing was really good, so I'm kind of like, I'm still, yeah, I'm still more weighty here. No, the point is, is that if you can plot yourself anywhere on that list, and by the way, that's not a complete list. That's just a sample of the human evil. Just a sample. And if you and I can plot ourselves anywhere on this list, then Jesus is screaming that we too are in need of restoration because there is evil within. And so Jesus is confronting that evil by shining the mirror of his word in our face so that we might see that evil, name it, and ask, what then must I do, Jesus? So if you're like me, and some of you are, (laughs) but a lot of you aren't, but if you're like me, the road inward to to self-examination, it's uh, often quite a bumpy road, and so I just don't travel down it. I just avoid it, because to go down that road inward is to then feel the feels, and I don't want to feel the feels, certainly not the negative ones, just the good ones for me, thank you, I'm fine with those. (laughs) But Jesus is not content to leave us where we are. It's wherever you are. Like Maybe you saw yourself in all of these things. It's okay to be wherever you are, but it's not okay to stay there. And Jesus then, he knows our impulse to avoid or to, to reframe and recast and just say, these are just surface issues like a little covetousness there, a little foolishness there, I never a little white lie never hurt anyone. He knows our hearts, and so the most gracious thing he does is he shows us our hearts. See, this tension between Jesus and the Pharisees, it's often painted as this antagonist-protagonist relationship, and in part because it is, but I think that this is Jesus calling the Pharisees, maybe even his colleagues, to see that their vision for flourishing is broke because they've made the signposts the substance and he wants them to see the substance these men who know the word of god who revere the word of god who have this holy longing and impulse have used then the word of god to abuse the people of god jesus wants to confront that evil because he is the way forward for cleansing and so he holds up the, the mirror of his words and he asks, What do you see? So, Gateway, what do you see? When you look into the word of God and behold the face of Jesus, what do you see? Don't look away. If you can plot yourself anywhere on this list, then Jesus is confronting the condition of your heart and saying that your heart is in desperate need of restoration from the evil within. And this is a damning reality when the mantras of our time demand us to follow our hearts. See, we we may not have the rabbinic tradition that is somewhat of a, a stumbling place for us, We don't have the tradition of men (laughs) that precede us in religiosity. Maybe some of us do. Maybe we grew up in in a fundamentalist framework, and so that tradition is still holding us captive. But if it's not that tradition, if it's not a religious tradition, then we have a party. We, We have an ideology. We have a framework. We have a way of seeing the world that if we're honest, doesn't fully map on to the vision that Jesus has for flourishing. And that competing ideology, that competing party, that competing vision, it creeps in to our vision of living and loving like God. And Jesus is here to say to us that that is defiled. And that can hurt. can hurt when the structures and people we've trusted in for years and years begin to crumble beneath our feet. That can hurt when all of a sudden we see, oh my goodness, it's not just good enough to say that I'm not a racist. I need to own that and be anti-racist. That, that is a long road, a long bumpy road to name the evil of our hearts. But Jesus is here not to condemn us, but to make a way forward so we might be cleansed. You see, the renovation of our hearts, the the cleansing of our hearts, it comes by faith, by allegiance to Jesus and to Jesus alone. The, The Pharisees and the scribes are a perfect example for us to look at right here because they give their allegiance to God plus something. So what is that? What is that for you or for me? Is it God plus my gender identity? Is it God plus my sexual orientation? Is it God plus morality? Is it God plus politics? Is it God plus gathering? Or God plus not gathering? Or God plus mat? Like, what is it? Jesus is calling for our unadulterated allegiance. Because he... He wants to cleanse our hearts from all unrighteousness. He wants us to be the people through whom restoration will flow. But how can restoration presence flow through us if our hearts are defiled? That's like saying, I'm going to filter water through a Brita filter, but that filter is full of crap. It just what would come out the other side would be no good. We would, it, would, it would hurt our insides. It would be damaging to us. So what do we have to do? We have to cleanse that. And in the way of Jesus, the way we cleanse that is by entrusting ourselves to Jesus, by trusting that his way is the way toward human flourishing, and this is the way of the gospel. The way of the gospel is actually saying that I obey, I follow Jesus because I'm loved. I don't obey to be loved. I I actually live out of a place, an identity of affirmation in Jesus, the one who gave himself away in love so that I may live. This is the movement of Jesus in this passage, and what's frustrating at the end is Mark, he doesn't, tell us. He doesn't resolve the evil that Jesus identifies in his heart. He invites us to keep reading, which we will keep doing over these forthcoming weeks and months. But the beauty of where we stand today is that we actually, we know the end of the story. We know that Jesus endured the shame of the cross, the sin of the world, so that he would taste death so we could taste life. Now, we get to partner with Jesus by the power of the Spirit to put that evil to death in his name. That, church, is the good news that Jesus is inviting us to turn to. There is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. So if you feel that flickering, Jesus is here to put that out. And I just pray that in Jesus' name there would be no condemnation, but that there would be conviction. That we would be convicted in our inner man and our inner woman and that then we would ask for God to cleanse us and for then a partnership, a space of relational trust to develop where we could move with him and keep in step with his spirit so that we might be people of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. So that we might bear out the fruit of the kingdom as people of the kingdom in the name of Jesus. If there was ever a moment ripe for our church to do this, it is now. To to resolve in our hearts, to gather in whatever capacity we can. And to follow Jesus by living in the way of Jesus. But first, we have to name that evil with Jesus and trust that his love actually conquers that evil. So that is our immediate step. So to that end, let us pray. Jesus, your word confronts us and you offer us a cleansing relationship with you. You offer us complete renovation of our hearts, and you invite us to participate in that renovation. Not just to say, I was cleansed then, now I do whatever I want, and I'm good someday off, but because Jesus, the restoration of all things, is coming here on earth as it is in heaven. Would you, Spirit, equip us? Would you, Spirit, build us up to be a people who receive your word, allow it to search our hearts, so that we might be the pure-hearted in the city of Des Moines who shine forth the glory of the kingdom of God here in Des Moines as it is in heaven. Amen. Amen.